House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Now, the letters weren't the only thing mailed in, were they? No. Um, there were three letters, two to the Chronicle and one to uh, celebrity attorney Melvin Belli, um, which contained pieces of cab driver Paul Stein's uh, bloody shirt. Um, there were blood all over his shirt. He was shot in the head, and he, he bled all over the cab. And three of those letters contained pieces of his shirt. And that supposedly proves that the person writing the letters had to be the killer. And so if I'm right, if the letters were a hoax, it had to be some way for some person to get their hands on on uh, at least one piece of shirt and rip it up into three pieces. So that actually turns out to be a pretty strong piece of evidence that the letters were a hoax. Um, it's difficult to see this on the radio, but uh, yeah. if you look at the three, if you look at the three pieces of shirt in the shirt itself, and over the years, you know, photographs have leaked out, and we we can see this stuff for ourselves. Um, there are basically three different types of blood stains, and, and blood is you, blood's not like ink. Blood is more like paint. There's a clear liquid, and then there are particles that stick together. Um, the, the red blood cells, and because of proteins and stuff, the white blood cells that'll stick together. So you have you have stains which soak all the way through a fabric or a material. You have blots which result from the the cloth or whatever, like being lowered down onto a puddle of liquid like blood. And then you have drips. You know, blood can drip uh, like any other liquid. And they leave very distinctive patterns of uh, on cloth. And when you look at both the, the shirt itself and the three pieces of shirt, you see two very distinctive types. You see stains, which very fresh blood, a large amount of it, it soaks all the way through the fabric. You can see it from both sides. And you see a little bit of what's called wicking, where the clear plasma will continue to spread through the material and leave behind the darker red blood cells. Um, you see that on Paul Stein's shirt. And you also see blots. And these blots are much darker. Um, they're much more contiguous. They have much clearer defined boundaries. And they don't soak all the way through the shirt. They're on one side of the fabric and not the other side of the fabric. And in this case, we're talking about the outside And that's true for all of the blots that are on the shirt and on the three pieces of the shirt that are supposedly evidence. And this happens, and you can tell the blood has begun to congeal. It's a, right, not dry out, but the proteins in the blood will start to stick together. So you have uh, puddles of semi-congealed blood, and you have the cloth coming into contact with that from above and picks this up. And there are actually, on one of the pieces, one of the shirt scraps mailed in a letter, you can see where it was bunched up and dipped into the blood, and then later on the cloth gets spread out, and you can see the you can see where the the different bands of, of this blot. And it raises the question: When were these pieces torn off the shirt? Were they the witnesses thought they saw the the shooter wiping down the door handles of the cab with a piece of light colored cloth? So the killer may have torn off a piece of the shirt and used it as, as a rag for whatever reason. Um, there were no traces of blood, and they had very sensitive chemical tests at the time. No traces of blood were found anywhere on any of these door handles that had been wiped off by the killer. So it kind of casts a little bit of doubt on the fact that he would have used a piece of the shirt, uh, or at least a piece of the shirt that had blood on it. 
um, and there's no evidence, there's no notes in any of this that, that he'd wiped up any blood. There are, however, when the killer left, the cab driver was lying kind of on the passenger side floorboard. He wasn't really lying completely across the seat. When the ambulance arrived, the ambulance driver, uh, first thing he did, he opened the door and he rolled the cab driver back up onto the seat. Now, his jacket had been pulled up, almost like he almost tried to take his jacket off, and his shirt had been pulled up. So it is possible that the killer did tear a piece of his shirt off. It's, it's very possible. And there's a big piece of it still missing. And then rolled him back over onto the, to the cab seat. The, the, it was a one-piece bench seat. It was an old-fashioned 1968 Ford. had one-piece seat. Rolled him back over onto the seat and checked to see if, there, if he was alive, if there were any other wounds. Um, and you can see this in the crime scene photographs. And you can see where the shirt's been bunched up. Now... I mean, you can, there are pictures the police department took of the pieces of shirt pinned in place where they were torn off the shirt. And you can see that this pattern of stains and blots is consistent, that all the blots were made at the same time. The, the blots of the, the shirt that was still on the cab driver and the blots that were on the pieces of shirt mailed in with the letters, that they were all made at the same time. Some of them even connect with each other. And that kind of indicates that, and, and because the, the blots are blood that has already begun to congeal, take about 10, 15 minutes, it tends to point away from the idea that these pieces were torn off the shirt by the killer. And the other interesting thing is that all, all, all of this, all the pieces torn off came off the back of the shirt. And there's a big piece that's still missing. And, and you can see, you can see there were three separate tears made in it. It wasn't one big piece that was torn off. Somebody tore off a big piece. Somebody tore off a narrow strip, and then somebody tore off another narrow strip. And the first strip was mailed. It was the first one to be mailed in with the letter. It was mailed in with the third letter, postmarked October, uh, October 12th, 13th. And then the next piece was torn in half, and one piece was mailed in another letter to the Chronicle, and, another, and the third piece was mailed uh, in a letter to Attorney Melvin Belli. So the shirt scraps were mailed into the newspapers in the chronological order they were torn off the shirt, which is interesting. Hmm. So what do you so, think? So, well, so the big question is, if it wasn't the killer, who could have done it? Who could have torn off a piece of the cab driver's shirt and not, and no one noticed? It would have to be either a cop or somebody who was maybe bribing his way, right? And the only, the only realistically, you couldn't do it at the scene because somebody would see you do it. So it had to be done after they got the body back to the morgue at the Hall of Justice. And um, the really only real, and it had to be done pretty quickly because this next letter was mailed very quickly. Um, you're talking about a window of a few hours. There was a period of time when, after the autopsy was finished and they brought the body and the clothes back, the clothes were laid out in the crime lab on a countertop to dry because you don't want to pack them up. At, put them away, they'll, they'll mold just like any other wet clothes. So you had to spread them out, let them dry. If someone, like a reporter, got access to that room, and reporters running out of there all the time, um, especially back in those days, a reporter could have noticed a piece of shirt missing and realized, hey, you know, I could use these to write a Zodiac letter. Now, you'd have to be talking about somebody who was already participating in the Zodiac hoax, and we we're talking about, you know, a pretty narrow list of even possible suspects. If such a thing is possible, that's a very short list of suspects. Well, it turns out there is a Chronicle reporter named Keith Power who'd written an article 
The, the third letter comes in and it says, this is the murderer of the taxi driver over by uh, Washington and Maple Street last night. Well, the shooting actually took place at Washington and Cherry, not Washington and Maple. According to Keith Powers' article, he explains all this. He says Stein's trip sheet, you know, the cab drivers, it's all computerized now. But he used to have a sheet on a clipboard, and he would write down where he picked up a fare, what the stated destination was, what the actual destination was, and how much money he collected. He turned this in at the end of the night with his money, and he would keep us tips. Well, according to Power, Stein's trip sheet said that he picked up his last fare at the intersection of Mason and Geary. That happens to be right in front of, uh, and the restaurant is still there. It's called the Pinecrest Diner uh, down the theater district south of Knob Hill. He said he picked up his last fare at Mason and Geary, and the stated destination was Washington and Maple. Well, that explains it, right? Um, one of Zodiac's wrong facts has been explained. Graysmith doesn't even mention this fact in his book at all, which is odd. Because here's a reporter who has confirmed beyond the shadow of a doubt, here's official confirmation that Zodiac was right about one of his weird little facts. Well, the funny thing is, if we look and see where Power got that information, and this article has his byline on it, the San Francisco Police Department didn't know anything about this. Because they assumed that he picked up his last fare on Knob Hill in front of the Fairmont Hotel. And they had, what, they had like 13 officers interviewing everybody who worked in that neighborhood. Did you see him get in the cab? Did you see him get in the cab? Um, and to this day, it's not, it's not mentioned in the inventory of evidence that was taken from the cab and turned into the evidence locker that's signed for by George Schultz. And when we look, we're, videotapes and pictures have leaked out. Sometimes you get like uh, these documentary TV shows and they get, they'll drag out the evidence and let people photograph it. It's all there except the trip sheet. So we have all, all of these indications that San Francisco Police Department never were in possession of Paul Stein's trip sheet. So the question is, where did Keith Power get it? Mm -hmm. And there is one possible match of a fingerprint. The witnesses saw the shooter wipe down the front and back passenger door handles and the back driver's side door handle of the cab. They don't say anything about him doing anything to the driver's door. Um, and why would he? he? He wouldn't have left his fingerprints on the driver's door. He would, right? Yeah. When the, ca look, the cab was towed back to the Hall of Justice, left in the parking garage, unattended for several hours, waiting for the the crime scene technicians to come into work at 5.30. During that time, somebody opened the driver's door of the cab and left his fingerprints. It's a left hand. In Graysmith's book, he claims it's the prints of a right hand on the pillar between the, the front and back doors. It's not true. No fingerprints were found there. Somebody opened the door, wrapped their hand around the door, and the reason we know it was after the shooting is because his left ring finger pressed down onto a tiny droplet of blood that had spattered onto the window frame around the door. And it's the only fingerprint that has any traces of blood in it. So it's not a bloody hand. It's not a bloody handprint. The palm, parts of the fingers, and the tips of the fingers, that they, they got prints. A letter that came in in July of 1970, the so-called Mikado letter, I have a little list, blah, 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 blah. That letter has a complete set of fingerprints, several sets of fingerprints, and the left ring finger of that print, the, the part that's overlapped,
a legally conclusive match. They appear to match. It appears that the person who opened the driver's door of the cab and reached in and grabbed something, that person apparently touched the littlest letter. It's not legally conclusive, but it's the only matching fingerprint we have. And it, it takes no imagination at all to think of Keith Power going, around, going down to the parking garage, opening the one door that he knows the killer wouldn't have touched. He knows the killer wouldn't have touched the driver's side door. Reaching in, rummaging around, looking for a piece of evidence and finding the trip sheet. And he notices on the trip sheet that the stated destination is Washington and Maple. And he knows the crime scene is Washington and Cherry. And he thinks, aha, this would be a great opportunity to write a Zodiac letter. Wow. And we know for a fact that a Chronicle reporter had caught, like he had a copy of Hoffman's report, for example. And, 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 right, and so did Zodiac. So we have a Chronicle reporter who's a pretty good suspect in going through the cab and removing a piece of evidence. And, and evidence tampering by reporters was not uncommon in those days. And if that's true, you know, he's written us either he's lied about the trip sheet or he just grabbed it out of the cab because San Francisco police didn't have it. And so it's not hard to imagine that same reporter going into the crime lab, maybe he bribed his way in, we don't know, and noticing a piece of shirt missing from the cab driver's shirt and tearing off a couple more pieces and using those to write Zodiac letters. Because mm -hmm. it's, right it's right after the Stein letters that... Power is taken off the Zodiac story, and the handwriting changes, and the and the personality of the person writing the letters changes. All these things happen at one time. Really strange. Really strange. So what? What's your thought on tying this with anything else that happened, like with another person? Uh, you mean with another hoaxer or another? Yeah. Like, is it? Is it? Yeah, is there another hoaxer involved, or is it just sort of... Well, the person who, on the list of people who could have done it, one of them is Hal Snook, and um, we do have a, a bona fide copy of some uh, some of his handwriting from, from 1969, and it appears to be a perfect match. And he was, the, he was someone who knew about these Ted Ted death cults in the South Pacific. He's someone who... Uh, what's interesting about Hal Snook, I forgot to mention this, after World War II, he went to college on the GI Bill. He got his degree in journalism from San Jose State, which is still a top journalism school. And he actually ran a couple of small-town newspapers for a couple of years. Uh, and then uh, it's tough, you know, it's it's a tough business. And so when the Korean War started, he, he re-enlisted. He enlisted in the Air Force as an officer. And... Uh, there's more about that. I, uh, I'm not going to publish so I can confirm it. But he knew a lot about the newspaper business, which is interesting because the person writing the Zodiac Lord just knew a lot about the newspaper business yeah. um, and was real friendly with reporters. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, every, every, everything we can see indicates that House Snook was, was a stereotypical good cop. And real, I mean, he was actually pretty gung-ho. And he was really gung-ho about prosecuting narcotics offenders, really gung-ho. And so it, I don't think his participation was meant to be a joke. I think he was trying to call attention to some corruption issues. And even the fact that reporters could wander around the Hall of Justice and grab pieces of evidence was something that was kind of exposed in this, in this Zodiac hoax. Um, and it just seems funny that after that October 20th conference, those guys drop out of the story completely 
and someone else starts writing Zodiac letters, but they're different. You know, they're different personality. He's no longer making any credible claims. He's not ma mailing in any more evidence. Uh, and the one person, one of the people who could have done a thing like that, uh, a lot of those, and there's a lot of fingers pointing directly at Gray Smith. But I think the first three, possibly four letters, those uh, those were written by by Hal Snook with the help of Keith Power. Huh. I think all I think all the evidence points directly to those two guys and to nobody else. And so, so have you taken a lot of um, flack or controversy or backlash about about uh, you know your Zodiac killer hoax sort of theory and and that idea? There, there is some. You know, there are diehard Zodiac fans who don't want to believe that there was no Zodiac, and I understand that. There are some people who uh, try to make a buck off the Zodiac myth, uh, and of course they they don't like to hear this either. Um, and they've kind of their attempts to disprove me have kind of shown that they're frauds. Um, I'll give you a good example. There's the only other claim that's made that supposedly links the letters to a murder is at at the lake. There were no letters about the stabbing at Lake Berryessa. But there was a message written on the victim's car door, the passenger door of Brian Hartnell's Carmen Gia. And um, it's a very brief message. There's not much of a handwriting sample there. The posture would have been awkward. But it supposedly matches the handwriting on the letters. And it includes the famous symbol, the, the circled crosshair symbol of the Zodiac that he used even before he used his name. The name Zodiac was not used in the message. Uh, his second letter, he says, this is the Zodiac speaking. That had not been published in the papers. Um, but in, in, the, in the supposedly another phone call was made to Napa police after the stabbing, taking credit, right? He forgot to say, this is the Zodiac speaking. The victim profile was a little different. This actually was a secluded lover's spot, right, down on the beach of this lake. Um, they actually were a couple, and they had – there's a – Probably they'd actually had sex. They'd actually gone down the lake and had sex before they were attacked. Um, and but the mo is different. It's a completely different weapon. He he talks to them for a long time. He abducts them at gunpoint. He talks to them for maybe fifteen minutes. He ties them up. He stabs them. This is completely different from the other. They're all the rest of the Zodiac crimes, supposedly shootings, right? And so the first thing you think of is copycat. Um, and it happens that there were there were Zodiac copycats in the Bay Area at the time. So why don't we think this was a copycat? Well, supposedly the fact that the handwriting and the fact that he used the, the Zodiac symbol. Well, Zodiac expert Tom Voigt on his website, he used to have uh, a digital copy of the front page of the August 4th edition of the Vallejo Times Herald. This is this is eight weeks before the stabbing. The Vallejo Times-Herald published a life-size photocopy of the entire first letter, including the Zodiac symbol, on the front page of their paper, hoping someone might recognize the handwriting or the symbol. So a potential copycat striking at Lake Berryessa, which is completely right, it's the only one, Zodiac crime that supposedly takes place in Napa County. Huh. Um, and, and the Vallejo Times-Herald was actually the number one circulation paper in Napa County. Uh, reading the Zodiac letters, you can tell which... Papers he read, and which papers he didn't read, and he either he and apparently the Zodiac lived in Napa County because those are the papers that were available. He's responding to papers available in Napa County, which I thought was interesting. Hal Snick lived in Napa County, but but the assailant at Lake Berryessa had eight weeks 
to practice the handwriting. It's not a very big sample. And to practice, right, and, and he would have known about the zodiac symbol. But he didn't know about the name. The second letter had come in with the name saying, this is the zodiac speaking, but there's no use of the name zodiac in connection to the Lake Berryessa stabbing. And there's no letter about it. He never wrote a letter, even even tangentially re- referring to the to the Lake Berryessa stabbing. So I think a pretty strong indication that that was just a copycat. Hmm. So... Where do where do you see um, where do you see it going now? Like um, with this kind of evidence coming forward, uh, like as as you're doing research, do you think uh, a lot of people believe it? Or I have heard people in law enforcement, if they were really familiar with these cases, they weren't surprised, um, and they weren't necessarily surprised at my suspects either. Um, I'm, there has been a lot of interest in the, from the public, more than I anticipated. There are people who are interested in, even though this is a 45-year-old cold case, people are interested in the truth. And, and, and of course, there's, there are people who, who are interested in seeing hoaxes exposed. And this is pretty despicable. I mean, this is not just the people writing the letters screwing up these cases. This is Graysmith making a lot of money. Right, confusing the public about these cases and, and, you know, deliberate lies. And a lot of people, even though this is 45 years ago, you know, the fact none of these kids got, and they were all kids, the oldest victim was 29, none of the victims or their families ever got any justice. And a big reason for that is, you know, there were solid suspects in these murders, but you'd have a hard time prosecuting them because they couldn't possibly be the Zodiac. And, and, and it, you know, it, that upsets a lot of people and a lot more people than I had expected. Are, have been interested in this. Um, the, you know, the, this is just another, you know, we find out this a lot. You know, some of the biggest stores of all time turn out to be at least partially fraudulent. And this, this is a pretty big fraud. This whole Zodiac myth is a pretty big fraud. And, and a lot of people do, do care about that, and I, you know, which is very gratifying. And it, it's very encouraging. And now because of the Internet and alternative media, you know, people have an opportunity to, to hear about these things. And the best part about it is no one has to take my word for anything. They can read these materials for themselves, look at the evidence for themselves, and, and draw their own conclusions. So, so what's the response from uh, Gray Smith? He's been conspicuously silent. I really expected some kind of cease and desist letter at this point, and I've heard absolutely nothing. Um, I, and I, some, of the, some of my harshest critics I know are Gray Smith's toadies. So I know he's heard about me for sure. There's absolutely no doubt he's heard about me, and he just hasn't said a word. And, you know, and there's a wall. You know, there's the big media companies and their outlets. Like if you see an author on the Today Show, it's because their publisher is owned by the same company that owns the Today Show. Um, so there's that wall, and he's inside that wall. No one inside the wall. What was interesting was um, uh, not Prentice Hall, who, who, who published that recent book that, my Daddy Was the Zodiac, Gary Stewart, oh, yeah. uh, the publisher of that book. Uh, they kept that book a secret for obvious reasons. I have been in correspondence <laughs> with, the, uh, with the, poor, uh, the poor question documents expert, Michael Axel. Um, and it turns out that the handwriting that he said belonged to the Zodiac is not... <laughs> the handwriting of Earl Best Jr. It's the handwriting of the minister who performed the wedding. <laughs> right? 
And, uh, you know, his excuse at first was, well, how would I, you know, I was told this was the handwriting of Robert Jr. But, but I wrote to him and I said, you know, and then, then they had three signatures. They said, well, I had four samples. I said, why didn't you notice that those four samples were written by two different people? Why didn't you notice that they were not all written by the same people? Even if you didn't know who the second person was, why didn't you notice they were written by the same people? And of course, after that, he stopped. You can you can go to his Amazon page and see where he stopped answering my questions. You know, and he was somebody who had asked to see my stuff on Snook's handwriting, and, and he's another one who just never responded after that hmm. because you know, and and so it's just been dead silence. Um, there's another one. Uh, uh, they're all named Mike. Uh, Mike. Uh, Michael Kelleher. He has an actual PhD. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, with a forensic psychologist where they psychoanalyzed his Zodiac killer. And he asked me a couple of questions and right and said, well, you don't understand this. And you don't understand that. And I and he stopped. So w once once I start showing them the evidence, they just stop responding. And but I have I heard nothing from Gray Smith or his or his publisher. So, yeah, well, you know, they. <laughs> Why would they? And really, that's a smart thing to do. You don't want to call attention to me, right? Because um, I can prove all this stuff in six ways for Sunday. You know, I don't make any claims I can't prove ironclad in court. I've, and I've I've been in publishing for twenty five years. I happen to enjoy the services of the best uh, libel attorney in the country. Um, so I'm very careful about what I say and about what I publish. So there's no way, you know, uh, they really don't. I think they're just hoping no one will notice. Or, and Grace was getting pretty old, you know. He's you know, pretty. He's got to be in his seventies now, hey? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know how much he's going to try to come out of the woodwork, and you know. <laughs> yeah. Do you find any anything out there right now that's uh, good? Uh, I, I don't mean that's in good as in uh, what do I mean? I mean sort of in that's pretty reliable or close to what you think happened or presents the evidence? Is there any movies or books or anything that you think people should look at? Everything you've ever seen has been based on Grace Smith's books. Oh, and that includes, that includes Fincher's movie. The only thing in Fincher's movie I can think of that he actually corrected was in Grace Smith's book, he claimed that Mike and Darlene were chased to the park uh, by somebody in a car, followed them all the way across town. In Fincher's movie, he actually shows Mike's actual story that he gave police at the time, which is that they went to the park, uh, a car, well, in the movie only, there's one car. In real life, three cars followed them into the parking lot. That's another indication that maybe they were, they were dealing some small quantities of drugs, all these cars that came in there, um, right? And then the car came and left and came back and they got shot. So that's pretty much the only thing. I've seen where people have actually corrected. They just rely on Grace Smith's book because that's what the audience is familiar with, and they don't see any reason to change any of that. Um, so, uh, you know, people are like, "Why are you making these claims?" Well, these actual these are the actual police department reports. You can read them for yourself. Uh, so, no, I haven't I haven't seen any anybody else. Um, and even people who uh, my sources for some of these documents like apparently don't read them. Uh, Michael Butterfield, uh, uh, it was kind of uh, it's been interesting. There, there's one he has a website, um, um, Mike Morford, uh, 
has a website, zodiackillersite.com, where he I've he's been priceless and he unlike the unlike Voight and Butterfield, uh, uh Morford always shares everything that he and his readers come up with. They come up with newspaper clippings and lost documents from time to time. He always shares everything he gets right away. But apparently he doesn't read it because I always have to point out to him, hey, I got this from your website. Um, but but at least he's honest, you're right. And at least and he does still keep in any new evidence that comes up. And he's debated me uh, on air before too. Like we've talked about this, and uh, hopefully we're going to do some more of those. He kind of represents that side of the camp. But at least he's honest. You know, at least we can trust him. Uh, if he's wrong about something, he's honestly wrong, and and he's rational. So he's about the best. I would recommend people to go besides my own about the Zodiac stuff. But, I mean, you can check out any of these websites. You can read these books, but you can read the actual original documents and see the original evidence, and, and you can just see this for yourself, that it just doesn't add up to a Zodiac killer. Yeah, it's better to read the originals rather than someone's, you know, story about it, right? Why not? If it's the downside is you're looking at upwards of 2,500 pages of badly Xeroxed cop typing, so it's tough. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, and, and one thing I take credit for is I organized it, I put it in chronological order, I collated everything, labeled everything, and, and pointed out that there are a couple pages that are still missing. As a result uh, I, I, uh, of my work, um, when, I sent that, when you buy the book, the 99-cent version of the book, the temporary version, Great Zodiac Killer Hoax in 1969, that report that I sent to law enforcement, a couple months later the FBI released some new documents. And they were the documents. Uh, there were a lot of pages, uh, but there were few few of the missing pages that. And that was this was kind of startling that Park Ranger Dennis Land was actually considered a pretty serious suspect for obvious reasons uh, in the attack at Lake Berryessa. Um, so that was that was kind of new and 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 apparently in in response to in response to my research because at that time I had suggested his brother Ray Land was the one writing the letters. Um, and it's still, but but they were, uh, and I knew that there'd been a couple reasons why Ray was considered a suspect at the time, but I had no idea to the extent to which his brother Dennis was considered, and and looks like a really good suspect for that attack and for some other stabbing uh, murders of young women in the area. So, hmm. was it, so was there any other evidence that uh, you found kind of compelling? In 1997, there was a, a fry cook uh, at the Pinecrest Diner who uh, shot and killed one of his coworkers with a, a, a 380 Beretta, which was the type of weapon used to shoot Stein. Um, and for some reason, the day that that evidence was being processed at the San Francisco uh, Crime Lab, for some reason that day they took out Paul Stein's shirt and took new photographs of it, and, and the pieces of shirt and pinned them all together. Um, he had been working at the Pinecrest since it opened a few months before Stein was shot. Um, there was somebody who was robbing cab drivers that fall, uh, San Francisco cab drivers and his M.O. was to get in a cab in the theater district uh, in that neighborhood and and asked to be taken to the Presidio Heights neighborhood like Washington and Laurel and robbing them at gunpoint. And it sure looked like the Stein killing was uh, a, a robbery where, you know, a gun just went off. It's probably probably shot him by accident, probably shot Stein by accident. And um, this guy sure fits. And he he's a dead ringer for the the witness composite sketches. Um, and for some reason, uh, the day after he shot one of his coworkers, when, when the, when the evidence from that crime was being processed in the lab for some reason, and it was a real busy day for them. They had a, 
uh, I can't remember the name of the group. They're these these militant bicyclists. Oh. And like <laughs> they would stage these unauthorized uh, parades and demonstrations in major cities back in the 90s. And they, they had one in San Francisco that day that every available cop, right, working working on this unauthorized demonstration. But that day they decided to drag out Paul Stein's shirt and take pictures of it and, and do some stuff with the shirt. So I argue that they, they had it... Uh, had it in their minds that this guy was a pretty good suspect because he was that was his mo he would get off work he he was a uh he was an immigrant from jordan he didn't have a lot of uh, he was always moonlighting always had two or three jobs and this this guy who was robbing these cabs was believed to be a cook or a kitchen employee from the different hotels and restaurants in that neighborhood um and and that 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 fit this guy perfectly, right down to the type of murder weapon. So I don't know if they found another piece of Paul Stein shirt or what. Uh, I've contacted SFPD and they don't want to talk about it. Um, and they're they're undermanned and underfunded, and they're the worst police department in the country. They solve less than forty percent of their murders. Um, but but apparently he was, and he happens to fit the witness description and the composite sketch, including some scars on the side of his neck. Uh, so I, I argue that that, and, and after that, after, after this guy was arrested, San Francisco Police Department just kind of more or less closed the Stein file ever since then. Huh. That's unusual. So, what do you think the fascination with all this is? Like, you know, with things like the Zodiac or Jack the Ripper and uh, things like that, why, why, why do you think certain cases stay with us? We all have a fear of death, and I think serial killers kind of you know, in the modern age, you know, we don't have as many, you know, demons and things we can believe in, but we can believe in serial killers. And they just, they just symbolize death, you know, just random, you know, uh, you, it's not like uh, things that can kill us like smoking or, or drunk driving. You know, it's just something that can strike, it, strike us at random. So I think we're, we're all secretly fascinated by it. And, and I think the idea of somebody getting away with murder is, it, it really bothers us. And we, humans have a kind of an instinctive sense of justice, especially murder. Yeah. We don't like to see people get away with murder. So Jack the Ripper, Zodiac Killer, even though it's been all these years, been so much time go by, I think, I think we all are kind of drawn to this. And then there are people who are, you know, maybe they secretly admire the guy, you know, committed the perfect crime. He, he made a fool of law enforcement or whatever. Um, and, and then there are those of us, you know, we like to think we can solve these crimes. Um, so I think, I think it covers all those bases. Mm, yeah. So let's see. Now we want to find out <laughs> what do you, um, what do you find interesting? Um, like what kind of books do you read? Well, I read a lot of biographies and histories. Um, I am fascinated by the, by the, the whole process of reading and writing. Um, some of us argue that, that that is thinking, that if you look at human evolution, um, we don't do a lot of thinking until we, till we start reading and writing. And now you look at the world that in the la over the last three, four thousand years, look what, look what we've done since we started reading and writing. So this was, this really drew me as, it's true crime, which, you know, I, I like to, I like to get goosebumps just like everybody else. And it also happened to be true crime that involved some pretty serious reading and writing. Um, so, uh, Tom Westcott, uh, an author named Tom Westcott has done uh, some similar stuff with the, the Jack the Ripper murders. 
Um, he argues that they, you know, he calls them the bank holiday murders because he sees a little bit more going on. Um, he's done something similar. I love reading his stuff. I love listening to him. Um, the great authors, I like to read great literature, and especially authors that, that write about reading and writing. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote about that. Um, and, and, and authors that touch on the subject of what, what happens in our minds when we read something, and the effect it has on us. Uh, James Joyce, people like that. Um, what else? Uh, cracked.com is probably my favorite website. <laughs> I love, I love reading that stuff. Um, and, and what yeah. about, uh, what about movies? Oh, my taste in movies, everything from, uh, the Ferrelli brothers to David Fincher. He makes great movies. I'm not saying he's not a great filmmaker. The, the movie Zodiac, what's interesting about the movie Zodiac is what we English professors we have a fancy word for it. It's called a, a meta-narrative. The movie is not really the story of the murders and the cases. The movie is the story of how Robert Graysmith came to write his book, supposedly. Um, a lot of falsifications in there that come from Graysmith. But that, that's called a meta-narrative, the story of how the book got written, the story of the story. So that, that adds an extra layer of interest for me, watching that movie. Um, I haven't seen Gone Girl yet. Looking forward to seeing Gone Girl. I'm, I'm sure that's going to be great. Um, I like, you know, Witness for the Prosecution. That's a classic movie, right? Um, I like a lot of Columbo, although that's absolutely not how homicides get investigated. <laughs> um, Dragnet is a much more realistic show, especially the old black and white uh, episodes of Dragnet is a much more realistic show. Um, Perry Mason is good. Uh, it's not about facts. It's about who does the most homework, right? Which lawyer does the most homework? Um, also, Perry Mason's clients are always guilty of something. I kind of like that. I kind of like the idea that they're they're guilty of something. They're just not guilty of that one particular murder, uh, which is which is great. Um, and you think um, any other TV shows right now get you going? Like, what do you think of all the? Uh, what do you? Th let's go that way. You know, the afterlife, ghosts, um, that sort of thing, demons. Oh, who's that? Who's that medium? She has her own TV show. She supposedly contacts dead relatives, and she's been exposed as a ho as a fraud over and over and over, what and she mean? never gets canceled. What? <laughs> oh, you mean the Long Island Medium? The Long Island Medium. She's been she's been exposed as a fraud many times. Yeah, and that's something that and it's something I've always admired Harry Houdini for was he said there's a big difference between entertainment and preying on people's grief. And my, my big beef with the true crime industry is you're profiting from people's misery and death. And that's bad enough. I mean, Anne Rule is bad enough. But for Robert Graysmith, to, by, by telling all these monstrous lies and making that kind of money and screwing up these cases in the mind of potential jurors, that's going, to me, that's going way over the line. So that's kind of my distinction. And I'm just as guilty as anybody of reading these books. Um, so people like the Long Island medium who are preying on people's grief and their desire to contact dead loved ones, to me, that's, that's absolutely despicable. And, and, and what's frustrating to me is she's been exposed many times, being a complete fraud, and, and she never gets canceled. Now, like the other true crime shows, like NCIS, I don't watch a lot of that stuff because, believe it or not, I'm not a fan. There, there are scenes in Fincher's Zodiac where I cover my eyes. <laughs> Right. I, I'm not a big fan of realistic movie violence. Cartoonish violence doesn't bother me like a Rambo movie doesn't bother me, you know, but but that kind of stuff bothers me. So I don't watch a lot of it. 
Um, and it's not like that. You don't really solve the case because you find a hair. You, you, the hair is something that helps you get a conviction, but that's not really how you solve the case. Those, yeah. those shows are pretty unrealistic. Um, uh, I do have some experience over the years. Uh, I've worked for insurance companies as an investigator, uh, fraud to homicide, um, and some pretty uh, uh, people do terrible things for money. It's just terrible things for money. Oh, yeah. The worst, the worst murders are committed for money. It's just terrible. Um, and I'm also, and as a private investigator, um, but you know, so I have some insight into how it's done and how it shouldn't be done. And like one of the things you learn is whenever a, whenever a murder goes unsolved, it's usually because somebody doesn't want to solve it. There's a, there's a suspect who's not being looked at or they don't want to call in like the John Bonet Ramsey case. Like they didn't want outside help. And in, in in what's unusual about the Zodiac murders is a lot of them took place in small towns and they didn't want any outside help, which is unusual because murder investigations are terribly expensive and, and no one expects small town cops, especially in those days. Cops in those days got almost no training. The average cop, the average small town cop today gets far more training than the average detective ever got back back in those days. And and so whenever they don't want help, it's usually, there's a red flag right there that either it maybe doesn't have anything to do with the murder. They just don't want outside investigators poking their noses and stuff. Yeah. So one thing I've learned is when a murder goes on, or a lot of times the victim's family or friends or like there are witnesses who just don't want the murder solved. So it's either the police department doesn't want to solve it or the victim's team people on the side of the victim they don't want it solved either. They don't want they don't want to they don't want to cooperate with police. So that's one thing I've learned is, and, and the, the big thing was that th I've never investigated a mystery, right? Wherever the mystery was, that was where somebody was either lying or not looking or I never really encountered much of what I would call a mystery. Uh, when you looked behind the curtain and saw what was going on, there really wasn't much of a mystery to it. Um, and it turned, the Zodiac kind of turns out to be, there's really no mystery to it. Yeah. Well, Okay. Now, uh, do you want to give out any of your information so people can cannot contact you? Oh, sure. Uh, my, 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 as an author, I'm known as Thomas Henry Horan. There's another Thomas Horan who's a professor who writes books on totally unrelated subjects. <laughs> um, so Thomas Henry Horan, H-O-R-A-N. You can Google my name. You, if you Google Zodiac Hoax or Zodiac Killer Hoax, you'll find my websites. Um, there, the one website is going to be the footnotes to the finished books, but there are discussion threads you can participate on. There's an old blog I had that was kind of a minor, it was a very small audience. I mean, it's still it's still there, you can still find it. You can go to Amazon.com, uh, you can Google my name, or, or you can search my name, or, or just search for Zodiac Killer Hoax, and you'll, and you'll find my books there. Um, and there, there are usually links plastered everywhere. I've, been, I've appeared on other shows, and, and again, thank you guys very much. Um, you, other interviews where we, and again, this is a lot, we're talking five homicide cases, right? That's a lot to talk about, 2,500 pages of information. So it's a lot for people. If this is the first time you've heard of this. You're going to have a 1,000 unanswered questions, and it's perfectly understandable. So, oh, yeah. And I'll work very hard to get these other two books done by yeah. summer, I promise. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, it's been great to have you. It's been uh, very interesting. And uh, maybe we'll have you again here, like when you've got the books finished and uh, you want to talk some more. That would be fantastic. Thank you guys so much. Okay, thank you.
Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of the Z-Talk Radio Network. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.